0: Welcome back to episode number eight. And again, it's January 30th. Today, we've got lots to talk about. First, we're going to start with a catalyst for the upcoming week. We've got the Dallas Fed manufacturing data coming out this morning, 7.30 Eastern. We've got Tuesday data. Uh, UBS uh, will be reporting. Snap, chat will be reporting. AMD will be reporting. We'll also get the employment cost index report. That'll be a big deal because it'll be coming right before that Fed meeting. And I want to know, hey, how's that wage inflation doing? And the ECI is one of the Fed's favorite methods for analyzing how wage inflation is moving. We'll have uh, home price data for November, which is ridiculously lagged, but it's the FHFA and s and uh, home price uh, index data. That'll come out for November on Tuesday morning. Wednesday, we'll get construction spending. We expect that to come in with 0% growth. And we get ISM manufacturing for the month of December. We expect that survey to come in contractionary at 48 versus 48.4 before that. And we also get vehicle sales numbers. But more importantly, we get Fed. On Wednesday, we expect to hear from Jerome Powell at 11 a.m. California time. We'll be getting the interest rate hike decision we pretty widely expect to get 25 basis points. And so far, the Federal Reserve has been pretty consistent with if the market expects something, that's what the market ends up getting. (laughs) Uh, So we're expecting that 25 BP hike. But what we're really looking for is how the Fed sort of massages their messaging. We'll talk a little bit more about that and what to look for in a moment. Uh, so, uh, at, and then 30 minutes later, of course, we'll have the Federal Reserve Press Conference, and that's where we'll probably be able to get most of the insights from uh, Federal Reserve Board positioning for future rate hikes, any potential for cuts, and uh, any potential for uh, insight into how long we're going to sit uh, at that terminal rate once we arrive there. And where maybe, hey, where is that neutral rate? We'll also talk more about that in a moment. Then uh, we, on Wednesday, also have Facebook and Peloton reporting. JOLTS data also comes out. Actually, before the Fed meeting, we'll be getting JOLTS data, which is good, as well as the uh, ADP unemployment report. ADP unemployment reports expecting 170,000 jobs, down from 235,000 prior. It would be one of the uh, lowest surveys here. Bank of America is expecting we'll start, soon start seeing negative un- or, uh, employment reports, I should say. Uh, not unemployment reports, employment reports, and uh, we might actually go negative in Q1, is is the estimate from Bank of America. We'll see. So far for uh, the employment report for December, we expect to be at about one hundred and seventy thousand. The JOLTS report, this is the job openings and labor turnover report, is expecting ten point two nine three million job openings. And that's down from ten point four five but still above some of the levels that we've hit uh, just a few months ago of below $10 million. On Thursday, we'll get the European Central Bank. That'll probably be hiking rates. We'll get the Bank of England. That'll probably hike rates. And we'll get Google, Apple, Amazon, Qualcomm, and Deutsche Bank reporting uh, earnings. Friday, we'll get uh, the Friday jobs report, or the uh, January jobs report already. It's kind of crazy to think that January is over in just one day from now. Uh, that uh, that does put us uh, at the, uh, uh, also, as I've mentioned, the expiration of that coupon code link down below. Get The best price guaranteed going forward into the future. Price will be higher. We also have information that uh, Biden is expected to talk to McCarthy and intends to work with McCarthy to prevent a default on the debt ceiling. Both sides are saying, don't worry, we will not allow a default to happen. Yet after Kevin McCarthy couldn't even get elected as Speaker of the House, a lot of folks are concerned that default is exactly what's coming and it's the last thing that we need in a recessionary environment. The European Union is uh, starting off, uh, well, 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 (laughs) continuing, I should say, the green subsidy race, as the Financial Times puts it. The Financial Times yesterday had a piece talking about how Uh, In the United States, you've got the Inflation Reduction Act. In uh, Europe, you've got the EU and individual countries all pushing for tax cuts for chips, solar energy batteries. And really, you're getting this sort of back and forth of of subsidies and incentives to develop clean energy products and chips. Now, uh, this, I think, it leads to basically massive stimulus checks for green-related companies and chip companies. (laughs) So uh, we'll see how everything evolves, but I expect that over the next decade, these uh, stimulus checks are going to pay off pretty well for chip and energy companies. You had uh, SoFi report earnings uh, today better than expected with even better guidance than expected. SoFi uh, reported revenue of 443 mil versus the 423 that was expected. They also took a lot more to the bottom line than expected. EBITDA coming in at 70.1 million versus just 42.6 expected. I'm personally very surprised by that. I thought their net interest revenue would plummet with how much money they're spending on attracting new customers with higher interest rate yields on their products. Congratulations uh, to them. That's awesome. We have uh, forecasted revenue to be between 430 and 440 mil in the first quarter, which is actually more uh, than expected. And so that's leading SoFi to rise in the pre-market. Now, one of the things I like doing, we generally do this uh, with course members, but one of my favorite things to do is uh, go through earnings reports in detail. Uh, they, they can give us a lot of incredible insight into what companies are doing and what's going on really with the broader economy. Uh, and what we can do is take a brief look at Sofi and see what's going on. We'll do exactly that together. So the first thing that I'm noticing is their total interest income came in at 307 million, which, relative to last year, is almost a 3x. That substantially increases the rate of growth that they had in the uh, for, in the year ended. Uh, December thirty first. The year ended December thirty first. They were uh, they, they were sitting at about seven hundred and seventy three million for the entire year in net interest income. And last year they sat at three hundred and fifty five million for the entire year of twenty twenty one. Well, now in just the last three months of twenty twenty two, they've almost made as much net interest income as they did in the entire last year. That's pretty remarkable. Now, obviously, their net interest expense has also gone up, but that would be, uh, that's totally expected. Sitting at roughly about 30% net interest expense here, $98 million uh, versus the uh, total interest income. So net interest income here, $208 million, pretty incredible. Obviously, this comes before OPEX, but uh, still remarkable. We've got some income here from selling uh, loans and loan originations. That's another 248 million and uh, Opex running up to about 495 mil. so you're still ending here with a loss of 40 million, but it's the smallest loss we have here in the reporting periods that we see. Uh, just a five cent per share loss, 40 million dollar loss with uh, a pretty large ballooning here in revenues and not as much of a ballooning in operating expenses. So p- quite frankly, pretty impressive pretty impressive. Uh, So uh, congratulations to SoFi. You have a growth year, year over year of OPEX looking at 25%. But again, net interest, or we can even go with total net revenue here. Total net revenue, uh, if we consider net interest revenue and uh, the other products like selling loans, they're up 60% in revenue. A 60% revenue increase, net revenue increase versus a 25% OPEX increase, which includes sales and marketing. So great job. Uh, really, really impressive. Not expecting that at all. So congrats. So fine. Bitcoin uh, did do a little bit of work this weekend. It ran up to uh, almost 24,000, got rejected at 24,000. Uh, we ran uh, all the way up to uh, 23,964, only to come really crashing down this morning. Uh, right around uh, 2 a.m. Eastern time, we started selling down a little bit. Uh, I think this is uh, the beginning of sort of your pre-Fed trading. Uh, you tend to get this pretty regularly before the Federal Reserve actually reports uh, their um, uh, their decision and, and uh, ends up potentially talking the market uh, down into the dirty slums of a Fed-induced recession of pain, you tend to uh, you tend to see stocks sell down, uh, and, and and ultimately, what ends up happening this week is is in my expectation entirely dependent on the Federal Reserve. Uh, remember, we've also got that employment cost index report coming out tomorrow, which I think will be a pretty large catalyst for uh, in in preparation for the Fed. So stay tuned for that tomorrow. We have the five year break even inflation rate, by the way, still sitting around three Sorry, two point three eight. Uh, this is off of the lows, off of the triple lows that we've hit, but uh, it's uh, it's it's staying consistent with about a low level that we've seen in uh, December, a low level we've seen in November, and all in all, the last quarter had inflation break evens substantially lower than any part of the prior year. That is, uh, the last quarter substantially lower inflation expectations than the nine months before that, uh, especially coming off the war in. Ukraine. You do also have financial conditions moving around a little bit. Uh, Financial conditions though, uh, broadly, while they did spike a little bit last week, ended up rotating down from much of last week and into today where financial conditions are lower than where we have been since August. August is the last time financial conditions have been this loose. Financial conditions a little bit different from break-evens in that they uh, will, will take into account not just uh, stock prices but they'll also take into account treasuries which treasuries have been a little bit uh, a little bit on a run here this morning we're looking at about 3.55 on the 10-year and we've seen this vacillation at the 10year quite a bit where maybe we'll go slightly below then we go back above then we go slightly below we go slightly above we're really stuck at that 35 level it's almost like a magnet. Now, while that on one hand is great because it signals to the Fed, don't worry, you don't have to get more aggressive, financial conditions are tight, uh, it, is, uh, it is a little problematic for the real estate market. Real estate is expected to suffer more the longer the 10-year treasury yield sits at 3.5%. So, definitely some, uh, some red flags. Now, uh, we uh, also have some geopolitical red flags and catalysts, and there are quite a few of those. So we've got to talk about uh, exactly what's going on with China, Taiwan, and Ukraine, because boy, oh boy, these could all be a hotbed of pain uh, for the next, honestly, years going forward, with now projections of a potential war between China and Taiwan wrapping the United States right into it. We'll talk about those projections, talk about what's going on in Ukraine now. So China and Taiwan. Now we have a uh, a former army general, Michael Minahan, who's come out and suggested that we could see war within two years between Taiwan and China, and that could end up dragging the United States into battle to help defend or defend Taiwan versus China. The individual says that my gut tells me we will fight in 2025, he wrote in a memo to staff. Uh, A U.S. representative uh, replied to this and uh, agreed with the assessment, unfortunately. this was Michael McCall, who suggests that China is looking to ultimately take control of Taiwan. Of course, Some other individuals in the House of Representatives replied to this and thought it was absolutely ridiculous that China would end up invading Taiwan, that uh, China has become, yes, uh, a style of authoritarian and communist regime, but much more capitalistic, but very different from the United States in that we are all about individual capitalism. China is all about national capitalism. And the last thing they'd want to do is crush their economy even more with a war. But that doesn't change. General Minnehan's or uh, Mr. McCall, Congressman McCall's opinion that uh, China strongly believes in the One China policy. Now remember, that's not to be confused with the old and now removed One Child policy, which probably helped China ultimately lead to a declining population uh, or receive a declining population and a declining birth rate. That policy was removed, but Chinese still aren't having a lot of babies. But anyway, back to the One China policy. The One China policy really argues that there is no difference between Taiwan and China, That they are a unified uh, China. Of course, Taiwan sees itself as an independent democracy or republic. And China has warned that uh, Kevin McCarthy should absolutely not repeat the same mistake of Nancy Pelosi by visiting Taiwan. Remember that in August, between August 2nd and August 3rd, Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. The first uh, leader of of, uh, her closeness to the presidency, just three seats away from the presidency, Uh, to visit Taiwan in decades and this led Beijing to launch pretty large-scale military exercises with missiles landing in Japanese and Taiwanese water. Uh, McCarthy did promise to make a trip to Taiwan of his own if he became Speaker of the House. Now, obviously, he's Speaker of the House. Taiwan is one of the four Asian tigers, also known as the four little uh, dragons. Uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, these four are uh, essentially uh, regions that have become highly globalized and highly innovative and are leading to a lot of capitalistic growth in the asia pacific region but uh, it's worth noting there's still some pretty big ties between taiwan and china you've got 42 percent of uh, taiwan's exports still going to china and guess what most of those are optical equipment like mirrors and lenses, which is, or well, both of those are very important in semiconductor equipment, and semiconductor equipment itself. China obviously wanting to expand its own semiconductor supply chain substantially. Uh, Their big bet is on the Semiconductor Manufacturing International Trade Corporation, which is a competitor to TSMC. However, China still heavily relies on TSMC, and uh, that is why Taiwan uh, exports about 42% of its exports to China, or at least in part of the reason why. Taiwan also imports 22% of all of its imports from China. This is different from the United States who just sends about 15% of its exports to China and 10% of our imports come from China. So uh, McCall, Representative McCall ultimately warns that China is going to be strategic with how it might end up wanting to invade Taiwan in that they'll probably wait until after the 2024 elections. That will give them an opportunity to potentially influence Taiwan's elections in 2024. And if the influencing campaign in those elections fails, then they might end up looking at a military invasion. Uh, now, uh, Colonel Douglas uh, McGregor uh, believes this is unlikely. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel. Uh, he was very active during the Gulf War. He actually suggests that the issue so much isn't Taiwan and China, Taiwan. Uh, oh my gosh, China and Taiwan. Uh, it's actually Russia and Ukraine, and that's because Russia is, according to him, holding up a lot better than individuals and countries had hoped. Russia has found ways to work around sanctions. If anything, they've made it easier for China and India to get access to cheaper oil and, and to become uh, substantially stronger competitors to the United States. Uh, Ukraine is ultimately facing a lack of, uh, well, potential lack of uh, fighting aged and fighting capable individuals having lost already as many as 150,000 people confirmed dead, with another 35,000 individuals missing in action and believed to be dead. By some estimates that, uh, well, there are some estimates that seven years of javelin production uh, have have basically already disappeared uh, in uh, the war between Ukraine and Russia. Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, whose earnings reports I went through last week, and who partnered to make Javelins, for example, faced years of order backlogs before the war, and now those order backlogs are even worse. So in a weird way, we like to think that, oh, a military industrial complex, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon profiting bigly off the war. Well, they actually haven't really been able to increase their production that substantially, and what they're really doing is just adding more and more and more backlog to uh, what they end up needing to produce over the next decade. However, it's probably going to be great business for them through 2030, really. Especially as a lot of countries like uh, even Spain, Canada, Finland, uh, France, Germany, the Netherlands are all on the same page of now potentially sending not just armored personnel carriers, but also tanks, maybe even F-16s to Ukraine. And really what they're doing is they're depleting their own stockpile sending that to Ukraine, the front lines, so to speak, and then they'll just place new orders for brand new stuff that they'll eventually get when Lockheed and Raytheon and the other military machines uh, are capable of actually producing these products. Now, uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor uh, is very concerned about uh, the war uh, with Ukraine and and does not indicate that it's anywhere near uh, being finished, unfortunately. Uh, This comes at the same time as a Financial Times piece actually gave a little bit of light to what Russia is doing to make sure it continues to have a competitive army. I was a little bit blown away by this on one hand. On the other hand, it also somewhat makes sense. But apparently Russia is now authorizing uh, mercenary businesses like the Wagner Group in Russia to hire pardoned... Criminals to fight in Ukraine the Wagner group is a paramilitary group essentially a paid contractor to help fight in Ukraine and basically the only person who has the power to pardon individuals in Russia is Putin of course He can assign other people to do that pardoning and the expectation is they're pardoning tens of thousands of criminals armed robbers murderers you name it to go fight in Ukraine Dmitry Peskov, a spokesperson for Putin, actually ended up praising a convicted armed robber who was recruited by the Wagner Group for heroism in his fighting in Ukraine. And Putin himself awarded that individual, that former prisoner, armed robber, a medal on New Year's Eve, while also forgiving the rest of his sentence. He had already served seven years for his armed robbery, and now he's a war hero. Apparently, Russia is also now continuing this practice despite the United States and other groups labeling uh, trans, uh, these these uh, mercenary groups as transnational criminal organizations. The goal of these labels is obviously to limit their international reach, to limit their ability to conduct business, to limit their access to banking and finance. And uh, the U.S. is straight up basically sanctioning these companies. The United Kingdom is actually estimating that the number of prisons, uh, prisoners so far recruited to fight for Wagner, just one of the companies in Ukraine, has reached 50,000. Russia is uh, apparently also now uh, <laughs> taking taking in former convicts and former chefs, chefs uh, to end up becoming leaders in uh, the uh, offensive by Russia against uh, Ukraine. Basically, hey, who can we get to fight? This comes at the same time as, unfortunately, Ukraine was embarrassed for a uh, scandal over graft. Uh, This is essentially uh, the—it was really all tipped off by this guy named Yuri Nikolov. He tipped off the Ministry of Defense about crazy prices for catering on things like uh, just regular uh, battlefield rations, whether those are uh, crackers or dried fruits or whatever. And he exposed insane pricing that Ukraine was being charged and billed for this this military food. Apparently, there was a $350 million deal with a catering company, and, and they were charging wildly inflated prices. Ukrainians themselves are pissed off because they personally, I'm not talking about tax money here, personally have donated around $500 million of their own money to help fund the war. Uh, in Ukraine. And uh, now, apparently, uh, at the same time as Ukraine is internationally asking for money and weapons, what you actually have are these exposes coming out of substantial government corruption over where the money is going and being spent. This has led to the sacking of numerous different government officials. Well, one chief of staff from Zelensky fired or resigned, five governors of frontline provinces fired or resigned four deputy ministers fired or resigned, two members of the president's ruling savant of the People Party, this is a group in parliament, resigned or fired. A lot of finger pointing going on, a lot of new anti-graft policies, anti-corruption courts being created. The European Commission is suggesting they're investigating this, and we're trying to work with Zelensky on resolving the issues. Zelensky came into power in 2019, kind of ironically promised to end uh, tensions with Russia and now we're actually at war with Russia. So, a lot of pain going on between uh, Russia and Ukraine and a lot of stretching going on on both sides. And this is the kind of stuff that happens in war, but corruption is not going to be something very, very popular, especially when the United States is sending nearly $100 billion of economic aid uh, and military aid to Ukraine. For example, tanks which might not arrive for several months. 31 tanks from the United States, Abrams tanks, these are actual fighting tanks, not just armored personnel carriers, are going straight from the manufacturer to Ukraine. In the meantime, two battalions of leopards and British challengers, a total of about 100 tanks, are also going to Ukraine. We're expecting to get the uh, first wave of about 40 leopards in about three months, puts us at about April second batch later on Uh, we mentioned earlier but uh, to reiterate spain canada portugal the netherlands finland everyone is really chipping in here to contribute and allows them to give away sort of their older equipment and buy new equipment themselves however tanks are not the easiest because not only do you need to know how to actually operate the vehicle but now you need to be proficient enough to operate that vehicle while potentially under fire and in a battlefield And uh, this could take five to six weeks of just basic training and tactical training to learn how to actually integrate tanks, armored personnel carriers, javelins, howitzers, all together. Now, the potential plan is that uh, Ukraine might be able to attack from the north and cut off Russia's north-south supply routes. This would be by going in through the Luhansk province. Uh, and essentially limit the flow of Russians and limit the supply of Russians uh, to the southeast. Another option is going uh, south, more towards trying to destroy Russia's uh, supply chains, essentially, between Russia and Crimea. The problem is you have a lot of open territory here. Open territory is really tough because it makes it very difficult to move troops and supplies forward because all it takes is a Russian trench to take out your moving uh, troops. This is actually where tanks and armored personnel carriers end up becoming huge, not only for reconnaissance, but actually being able to take substantial swaths of land, move forward, and pressure Russia. Uh, it, uh, it It's a very D-Day-esque style of uh, potential scenario that, that uh, Ukraine needs to pull off. Estimates are that you would need three times as many attackers to be able to break through a Russian defensive line and uh, and potentially uh, control it. Uh, that would be in an effort to obviously overwhelm the Russians. So again, Ukraine's getting about 31 Abrams, about 100 tanks from Europe. You've got uh, this belief that uh, China and Taiwan on one hand could potentially go to war within two years and at the same time, war with Russia in Ukraine is uh, unfortunately nowhere really near finished as much as there is hope that the arrival of the tanks will help. The lack of manpower and the continued raising of manpower in Russia uh, continues to create nervousness, especially since in August, August, September, Russia recruited about 300,000 more service members, but only 150,000 of them have been deployed so far. Another 150,000 are, uh, uh, have been held back and are prepared for future deployment. Yikes, a lot of pain going on between uh, China and Ukraine, and these are going to be massive geopolitical issues we'll have to pay attention to. Now, don't forget, today's January 30th, so check out those programs on Building Your Wealth, linked down below, get the best price guaranteed going forward, and get lifetime access to all of the content, trading challenges, buy-sell alerts, course member live streams, by joining any of the programs, linked down below. Now, we've got to talk a little bit about the economy and the Federal Reserve. But first, let's
1: take a listen in to
0: see what Bloomberg has to say. Are
1: we seeing some of these names face just a little bit of a cyclical test? Are we seeing some of the structural story that's dominated these names and delivered monster gains over the last five years or so? Are we seeing that structural shift, a change in the underlying trend, Tom, that could be with us for years to come, regardless of the cycle?
2: I'll go with the structural shift. I think that gone are the days where you can get up and expect Amazon, Apple, uh, Alphabet, uh, Meta platforms to outperform against NASDAQ automatically. I think you need to see some company-specific initiatives, or in the case of Alphabet and Meta, a rebound in digital advertising on a strengthening economy for those shares to outperform the NASDAQ even over short periods of time. So I would say it's more structural. I think it's a change in dynamics. And I think it's something that's going to continue to play out over the next 12 months.
1: Uh, Tom, how does that influence your thoughts on how we should be thinking about valuing these companies with that in mind?
2: Well, the challenge for Amazon uh, long term is in order to maintain its premium multiple, they essentially have to outgrow the contraction in their multiple uh, from an earnings standpoint, which is why you're seeing such a significant shift in focus to services to higher margin efforts for Amazon. But the question for all these companies in big tech is, can they um, outpace the contraction in their multiple, uh, perhaps by having their profits grow at a higher than expected rate? And I think it's gonna be a challenge across the board.
3: What's gonna happen to the unprofitable tech companies? And I think about Snap, for example, as they report earnings tomorrow, is this going to be the beginning of the end? All
2: right, two two things. One, the good news is that uh, you're seeing a bid so a lot of the companies this year are getting uh, positive performance in their share price, even if you're seeing a pullback in some of their uh, projections for earnings. But for the companies like Snapchat, for companies that are losing money today and maybe don't have a great balance sheet, uh, they're basically in a race against time. Can they get incremental capital? Will the capital markets reopen uh, before they run out of money? And in many instances, is to be determined.
1: Hey, Tom, this was great. Hopefully we can do this again later this week when these numbers start to drop. Tom Forde there of DA Davidson. What have we got? Apple, Amazon. All right. Let's go ahead and hop on into what to expect uh,
0: economically and what's going on economically. There's a lot of wildness going on, so let's get started there. All right. One more sip of coffee and then we're ready to go. More Americans are now living paycheck to paycheck. You've got a repo crisis going on in the cars market. You've got craziness coming to the Federal Reserve this week. And many analysts saying, don't chase the rally. What do we believe? What do we think? Let's talk about it. But always remember, the coupon code expires today, January 30th. Check that out. Link down below for the best price possible. At least guaranteed for the next uh, three months, if not likely much longer. You get lifetime access. First, the share of Americans who say they're living paycheck to paycheck has now moved up. Now 64% of Americans say they're living paycheck to paycheck. That's an increase of 3% from last year. And on top of that, 8 million people out of that group earn more than $100,000 per year, yet half of the people earning more than $100,000 per year say they are now living paycheck to paycheck up substantially also from last year. This comes at the same time as in America, we're worried about a big recession coming. Germany telling us, no, don't worry, everything's fine. We're not going into a recession. And then literally days after, about two business days after Germany says, don't worry, we're not going into a recession. Ah, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, alles is good, everything is great. What happens? Oh no. GDP numbers come in for Germany, showing a 0.2% GDP decline. And uh, Germany's, of course, a manufacturing hub and a much greater than expected pullback, sadly, potentially pulling Germany into recession. But we got to talk about America because, look, even though we've got the Federal Reserve coming up this week, why has the market been rallying? Well, Mike Wilson says... The rally is something that you should not chase. Mike Wilson is, of course, the bear from Morgan Stanley, and he tells us the reason we saw a rally in January is because of the seasonal effect of people selling in December, potentially tax loss harvesting, and then getting back into the dip opportunity or FOMOing in on some short covering after December. Mike Wilson reiterates do not fight the Fed. And remember that, and this is another piece that I found, but uh, something to keep in mind is the last time we had a January that moved as much or nearly as much as it did this January. This has been the best January since 2019. Uh, Or the last time in 2019, January ended up popping up markets 8%. And now we're up about 6% in January, which again is the best January since 2019. But the difference between then and now was that in December of 2018, actually right around the 18th, 19th, and 20th, the Federal Reserve U-turned and individuals thought they were going to continue hiking and they did not. This is obviously before the pandemic and we had a pretty bloody December. And so that was the last time we had a great January when the Fed actually moved. The Fed has not moved at all. In fact, it's expected that Jerome Powell's probably going to keep on a pretty nasty mask this week. That's because As stocks are starting to slip up a little bit or or start rallying up a little bit, which is a slip for the Federal Reserve, we're seeing a slipping in financial conditions. Financial conditions in the last three months have started to loosen. And while on one hand, looser financial conditions is good for avoiding a recession, the Federal Reserve does not want financial conditions to get so loose that we end up leading inflation to rise again. That would be the biggest risk. And so my belief is that Jerome Powell is going to have to keep a very ugly mask on when he ends up talking at the press conference this Wednesday. We widely expect a 25 BP hike. We're not expecting any kind of move away from a 25 BP hike, but we're expecting Jerome Powell to probably reiterate what he gave us in the summary of economic projections in December. Any move off of what he told us in December would probably be seen as uh, bullish, especially if he softened the stance. I don't think he's going to be more aggressive based on what he reported in his December summary of economic projections with the rest of the Federal Reserve staff because data has actually come in weaker than when we had the Federal Reserve meeting in December. We've had weaker inflation. We've had weaker manufacturing numbers. So I'm not expecting a Fed that is going to be more hawkish than December. Now, personally, that could actually be a good thing because it could mean that we're not going to get talked to so dirty that the market ends up selling off. But I would caution against a lot of bullishness, mostly because I believe it'll be Jerome Powell's job to make sure he makes it very clear that he thinks we're still knocking on the door of a recession, that the 0.5% GDP estimate for 2023 is still his base case, that we're going to narrowly avoid a recession, but a narrow avoiding of a recession, in the words of the Fed, is probably, in the words of the market, a, uh, a recession. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised for him to reiterate the need to drive the unemployment rate up to 4.6%, which is what they, uh, the Federal Reserve Board together reiterated uh, in December, in addition to hiking rates to about 5.1% at a terminal rate. Right now, we sit at about 4.25%, and uh, if we get to about 5%, which would be three more 25 basis point hikes, we'll be at that five to five and a quarter rate hike, which we expect from the Federal Reserve uh, at, at their terminal rate. Now, the bond market is pricing in rate cuts at the end of 2023, but I expect Jerome Powell to reiterate what he said in December. We're not even talking about rate cuts. That's okay though, because when the Federal Reserve is convinced, and this is the beautiful thing, uh, and, and this is why I do not expect to see this now, but when the Fed is convinced inflation is gone and wage inflation is gone, What is the Fed going to do? Well, the Federal Reserve can very easily, in my opinion, maintain their credibility by making the following very simply: uh, making the following very simple. Hey, look, we have a policy called FATE, Flexible Average Inflation Targeting. We believe that the average inflation rate for PCE is going to be 2% we don't actually have to have the, the, the every single month's read be 2%. This is an easy way for them to back off the idea that inflation needs to be 2%. They could let it be a little higher for longer while still softening conditions, right? On top of that, I believe that once they're convinced inflation is gone, which is not yet, they can very, very quickly U-turn and stop the bleeding in the jobs market and actually prevent wage loss from going as high as they projected in December. I really believe December is the Federal Reserve trying to shoot ahead of the running deer. In other words, inflation has sort of been this running deer that's been getting away from the Fed, and the Fed has been following it, but they've always been lagging it in all of their summary of economic projections over the last year and a half. The Federal Reserve has been wrong. They've had to revise them up, 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 and up, and up. Now, I believe the Federal Reserve has finally given us a December report where they've actually come out ahead of inflation by becoming so aggressive. And I think now the Federal Reserve doesn't actually need to be more aggressive, especially since that uh, inflation data and manufacturing data is now coming in softer. I think the Fed is just likely to maintain what they iterated in December. So if I had to sort of simplify the messaging for what do I think we're going to get from Jerome Powell, I wanna make this very clear. I do not believe we are going to get more Hawking than December. I believe we'll probably stay consistent with the December Hawking. Consistent with December Hawking is basically just referring to the summary of economic projections from December. I think that's the easiest punt that Jerome Powell could do. He could go up, give a statement, answer the Q&A, and basically just punt the February meeting all the way to march just hey look we're doing 25 bp still waiting for more data look at the summary of economic projections of december that's our opinion nothing's changed that again it's not not really bullish so i wouldn't call it heavily bullish we're not i I don't think we're going to get a massive sort of softening position from jerome powell and i don't believe we're going to get more hawking so i actually think what we're going to get is a very neutral jerome this time. Now, it is possible, it is possible that neutral ends up being considered bullish because it isn't more hawking. I think a lot of folks believe that because markets rallied in January after that December disaster, the Fed has to turn into a hawk. I do not believe that is true. I believe the Fed will see that financial conditions are still substantially tight 10-year treasury yields are still sitting around 3.5%, also, again, substantially tight. And any kind of little rebound in the stock market we've seen is actually good for the purpose of avoiding a recession. Remember what they're trying to do. They're trying to thread a needle here. They're threading a needle suggesting, hey, look, we don't want things to be so tight that we definitely have a recession, but we don't want things to be so loose that we recreate inflation. We just want things to be, you know, sort of in the middle. And that's where I think the Fed's in the right place to just be neutral this time. Jay Powell, if you're watching this, ma'am, I would love to be at those FOMC press conferences so I could throw you some softballs, daddy. <laughs> okay, no, I'd, I think it'd be really cool to have some YouTube representation over at the Federal Reserve. But in the meantime... Uh, I, I'm not too nervous about j on on Wednesday. And I think that is okay. This is despite the fact that you have JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley saying sell the rally, Bank of America saying they expect us to move from job gains in 2022 every single month to job losses in Q1 of 2023, as high as 175,000 job losses per month coming in Q1 2023. That would be a massive flip. Uh, something that that uh, the that, uh, markets would not be very uh, prepared for I think. Uh, but remember we, we've known this since quite frankly I mean forever but but I've been talking about this since January of 2022. For over a year I've been talking about this. job losses lag recessions. So quite frankly the fact that everybody keeps focusing on job losses for me is just ludicrous because we, we know job losses lag a recession. <laughs> so the worst could potentially already be behind us. We'll see. Hedge funds don't seem to think so, though. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission just released data that there are 2.4 million contracts on treasuries with massive short bets. Massive short bets. We are more short uh, than we have been in quite a while on treasuries. Uh, Let me explain briefly what that means. When you are short treasuries, you believe that prices for treasuries are going to go down. When prices for treasuries go down, what does it mean? It means, uh uh-oh, short sellers and hedge funds think that interest rates on yields uh, or on treasury yields are actually going to skyrocket. So if you think yields are going to go up, you take the Michael Burry approach and you short. Look on screen now, I'll hide myself here for a moment. Traders have never been this bearish on treasuries. Aggregate treasury shorts the highest level of short selling since we have seen, uh, well, I mean, you can kind of see it tapers off to nothing going all the way back to 1993 there on the left. But on the right of this chart, we are at the highest level of short interest on treasuries that we have ever seen. This is substantial. Now, again, hedge funds like to hedge. So if things are getting better, great, go long stocks. If things are going to get worse, maybe you hedge by shorting, treasuries, especially since the Federal Reserve could end up telling us that they believe the neutral rate is closer to 4.8 to 4.9%, in which case we have more work to do, given that right now we're sitting at about a 4% lower bound on the uh, Fed funds rate, and we need to see that move up via 25 basis point hikes uh, throughout, uh, potentially the next three cycles. Uh, so keep that in mind. We want to we're probably going to get to 4.5. Let me make this very clear because it, it's the 25, 25 basis point brackets are a little confusing. We're at 4.25 to 4.5. Now we get a 25 basis point hike. We'll be at 4.5 to 4.75. Get another 25 basis point hike. Uh, and we expect that for Feb. We get the next one. We'll be at 4.75 to five. We get another one will be at five to five and a quarter. Uh, And this is why markets are expecting uh, we will potentially pause in May at five to five and a quarter. That would be slightly above that neutral rate, which the Fed has been talking about getting to for a while. Then the question just becomes, how long do they pause there? And how soon do we cut? I don't believe the Fed will be very inclined to give us many hints for that in this next uh, FOMC meeting, but we'll see. What's worse though, potentially, is not exactly what the Fed is doing, but what's going on with the car and auto market. Because a lot of folks are saying that the auto market is in a straight up bubble. In fact, the Federal Reserve just released its Q3 monthly rate of cars financed. And folks, ooh, in Q3 2022, it shot up to the highest level ever. Growing to $41.2 billion of vehicles financed in Q3, which could coincide with high vehicle prices and high, uh, uh, well, I mean, high financing costs. Uh, But in in terms of nominal loans financed, high vehicle prices probably are uh, what helped drive uh, this highest ever level of vehicles financed. Uh, and that was in the third quarter of 2022, roughly matches the rise in inflation that we've seen, but it doesn't help that interest rates also doubled over the last year, and delinquency, delinquency rates are starting to rise, especially for subprime borrowers, leading the analyst firm Fitch and rating credit rating firm Fitch to warn for a massive wave of incoming vehicle defaults and repossessions. In fact, some banks are now reportedly increasingly speeding up how fast they could repossess, repossess cars so they can sell them, obviously at a loss, but less of a loss than if they waited to repossess the cars longer. Think about it. If car prices are plummeting then you want to rep- and, and your, your borrower stops paying, you want to repossess that car as soon as possible so you could dump it on the market and get a, a, a lower loss than you would have otherwise if you were holding on to that slippery slope of prices plummeting. So far, we are still seeing the uh, default level on vehicles rise just roughly to 2019 levels, no exceeding of those default levels yet. However, Fitch does believe that very soon, the lowest income uh, subprime borrowers will exceed the default rates that we saw in 2019, not getting to the default rates that we saw in 2008, but still a substantial amount of additional pain. Now, some of the reasons for this, we kind of set up the perfect storm for subprime borrowing. You basically masked people's bad credit scores due to the pandemic, because it was impossible to be late and to get a bad credit score during the pandemic. Well, nearly impossible. You got a bunch of money from the government, unemployment money, stimulus checks, you name it. On top of that, via forbearance and you uh, you not needing to actually make your payments, leading a lot of credit scores to actually increase during the pandemic, Combine higher credit scores with a massive car shortage, high interest rates, chip crisis, and massive run-up in vehicle prices. What you have is people masking how qualified they actually are via higher credit scores. So higher credit scores, higher interest rates, higher prices, and gas prices running up. You have a recipe for disaster in car affordability. And so now, since uh, uh, over the last few months, about the last four to five months, we have seen a substantial tick up uh, in the number of 30-day lates and uh, the number of 90-day defaults. There's uh, this individual on Twitter called the car dealership guy. He's been uh, talking a lot about this problem. But he recently noticed that uh, he believes banks are so worried about repossessions on one hand, that they're increasing how quickly they're repossessing cars. But on the other hand, they're so morally incentive or like amorally, you'd almost call it, amorally incentivized to keep lending, to keep their profits to poten- potentially rising. What they're now doing is they're repossessing cars faster on one hand, but on the other hand, they're waiving requirements for loans so they can keep making new loans. So it's kind of crazy. More people are defaulting on one hand, but they're actually making it easier to get a new loan on the other hand. That's because they're starting to waive what's known as the open auto stipulation. This is when you go qualify for vehicle financing and it shows you already have an open auto loan. You're not supposed to qualify for another one unless you can make both payments. Well, now apparently lenders, according to Car Dealership guys, are starting to waive that stipulation, making it easier for people to buy a new car even as banks are worried about this crazy flood of repossessions. The car dealership guy says, this is stupid, especially since many people are underwater on cars they've bought over the last two to three years. Usually people who are underwater have to pay money. You have to feed the kitty to sell your car to buy a new one. Feeding the kitty means taking thousands of dollars out of your wallet to buy a new car and and pay off your old one. But most people don't have that money. So at the same time as defaults are rising and repossessions are skyrocketing, you actually have banks going, yeah, but let's keep the funnel full and let's keep lending as car prices are and or have already fallen 30% are and are continuing to fall. Uh, this individual believes that repossessions could end up getting ugly. And this is really bad for the car market. Elon Musk even went as far as replying to this saying, good prediction. Yikes. That's not so good. On top of that, We also have potential inflationary pressures, which continue to get talked about from China and wages. Consumption is expected uh, to, and to hopefully be, the main driver of the economy per the Chinese government. But consumption is actually not the main driver of the Chinese GDP. Now, in my opinion, I actually think that could keep that second wave of inflation down, but we'll see. Chinese government really wants to propel uh, spending in China. Household spending, Uh, as a percentage of GDP, is only 38% in China. In the United States, it's 70%. So in other words, the individual consumer makes up 70% of the U.S. economy, only 38% of the Chinese economy. Much of the other portion of the economy in China is the result of the housing boom. But the housing boom has turned into a massive housing bust. How quickly will individuals come back into the housing market even with lower restrictions on housing? Nobody knows. So we'll see. Fortunately, though, back in America, we have a uh, piece by Morgan Stanley suggesting that you can stop worrying about wage price uh, in, uh, inflation. And even though Morgan Stanley overall is pretty bearish, they suggest that because of more concentration uh, of of jobs, that is more uh, like larger and fewer companies having more jobs leading to less competition amongst other companies, leading to higher profits for those companies and lower unionization, ultimately should keep a lid on wage prices. We'll see. So if we put all of this together, look, there's a lot of bad news. you got a lot of analysts screaming about sell the rally. It's a bear market rally. You've got Germany potentially walking into a recession, even though they didn't think they would. You've got a repo crisis going on in the cars market. You've got this potential for a second wave of inflation in China. I personally believe, and this is sort of my summary of it, I don't believe a second wave of inflation in China is really going to lead to a lot of pain in the United States. I don't believe the conditions are present for a wage price spiral, though we wanna pay attention to that. Even though the auto bubble may be present, it is not anywhere near the levels of the 2008 crisis. It's still about half the levels of 2008. And yes, poor individuals are going to suffer the most as usual in a recession. I don't believe that the Federal Reserve necessarily has to push us off the cliff into a deep, dark recession. And whether or not we have a recession, uh, I I believe the United States will be relatively resilient uh, over the next decade. And uh, once we get through this temporary madness, we're off to the races for the rest of the decade. And chips will be the next new gold with pricing power for the rest of the decade. We'll see. Right now, chips aren't doing that great. Chip equipment companies seeing sales fall 30 to 50% but it seems as though a lot of that pain has already been priced in. So what do you think? Is the Fed going to talk dirty to us? Are some of these smaller embers of pain, like in the repos market and in China, going to lead to an explosion of pain and the reiteration that you should never fight the Fed? Or are we facing that Nike swoosh recovery where, yes, there are hot spots, but we're gonna get through those. We'll get through China. We'll get through wages. We'll get through inflation. We'll get through a reopening and we'll get through the repos. Uh, crisis in cars. We'll get through all of that and we'll just slowly keep chugging along. That's my belief, but doesn't necessarily have to be yours. But if you want to chat with me about your opinion, make sure to join the courses on building your wealth link down below. Today is January 30th, the day the coupon code expires. And that's it. We're moving away to higher pricing and a lifetime access is yours if you sign up with, uh, via the link down below for any of those programs on building your wealth. Let's now hop back on over to Doomba.
3: Markets a little bit softer after an incredible rally led by the tech names, and that really has stood out to me. And today, you are seeing a disproportionate sell-off in the Nasdaq, the S&P down eight tenths of a percent now, 40 of 50. And this really does come on the heels of perhaps a little bit of an increase in yields, but otherwise stability, 3.55 percent for the ten-year, which really raises a question of how much there is a direct correlation between bond yields and tech stocks. That when bond yields go down, tech stocks rally and vice versa, Michael O'Rourke, chief market strategist at Jones Trading joining us now. And I want to start there after an incredible rally led by those tech names that a lot-
0: Hey, Suresh, I I, I see your comment here that the coupon code wasn't working for you. Uh, The coupons, they they expire at the end of the day today. So 11.59 PM, Uh, it's possible you might be having an issue with uh, uh, maybe there's an ad block or something. Try a private browser or disabling ad block. Worst case scenario, check out on the course, Email us, and we will fix it for you afterwards. We can adjust uh, before it even hits your card. Uh, We can adjust it. Uh, So whatever issue you have, if it's the member code or whatever it is, uh, check out with the normal code, then we'll fix it after the fact. Just email us. If you need a custom bundle, send us an email at
4: kevinabkevin.com. We will get you taken care of. 2022, knowing the environment was a little, bit, a little bit gloomy, so they wanted to put money to work, and they've done it thus far. Early in 2023. But you're looking at seven mega cap names driving 50 percent of the S&P 500 gain year to date. And that's including Microsoft, who basically had a disappointing earnings call. So, um, I, like I said, I, I think it's, it's still happening, but I don't think it's sustainable.
3: Let's dig into uh, the earnings side of things. You said so far we really haven't seen incredible earnings. What? How important are the earnings that we're going to see later this week? In Meta on Wednesday, Apple, Amazon uh, and Alphabet all coming out on Thursday.
4: Yeah, I'm calling it AAA Thursday, Uh, you're talking about three mega cap names that represent about 12 to 13% of the S&P 500, they do 1.2 trillion in revenues. So when you look at Amazon, you know, Google or Alphabet, and and Apple- Oh, the price war has begun, baby,
0: Ford officially cuts prices on the Mach-E. Now why is this remarkable? Well, it finally shows that Tesla's price cuts are affecting the broader market. Uh, On the release of this news, Ford uh, is down 2.56%. Now, what's really important to know about this is a lot of folks, when Tesla's price cuts first came out, said, oh, don't worry. Tesla's price cuts won't affect the broader market. Nobody else is going to follow them and cut prices. What happened basically within a week of Tesla's price cuts, BMW cut prices three and a half to $10,000 for multiple of their markets, uh, their their vehicles in their market. And take a look at this Zero Hedge article here. Five days after we reported that Tesla was accused of weaponizing price cuts in order to crush their competition in the electric vehicle space. Ford has announced price cuts for their electric Mustang Mach-E along with several other models across the board. Keep in mind that Ford is not even profitable on the Mach-E. Ford is arguing that they are going to ramp up significantly their production of the Mustang Mach-E in 2023 which is basically a way of saying they're going to lose even more money in a recessionary year and in an autos crisis this year. That's wild. Zero Hedge goes on to say that Tesla's move to squeeze competitors by sacrificing some of its strong profit margins could be seen in recent price cuts of the Model Y, which is now priced at $53,000, from around $66,000. If buyers qualify for the federal tax credit, they can knock off another $7,500. Bank of America analyst John Murphy says, unlike Tesla, traditional automakers have very thin profit margins or lose money on their EV lineups. That's exactly what I just said about Ford. Uh Uh-huh, so reducing prices is even worse. Keep in mind that if a company like BYD, everybody's freaking out about BYD, but if a company like BYD ends up dropping prices, they only have 1.45 percent of their net profit margin, and then they crumble after that. And then they're negative, uh, which might happen in a recession. So now there's a suggestion of who's next to drop prices. We'll see. But at the same time as uh, we have uh, we have uh, this this price war happening in the auto space, uh, we have. Uh, you know, the Tesla earnings report that came out last week. And I want to be very clear because I, I don't think folks are paying attention to this. I do think this is a red flag and, and don't get me wrong, okay? I'm a big fan of Tesla. I'm an investor in Tesla. Uh, uh, you know, it, 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 I've got a lot of exposure to Tesla in, in many different ways. And I'm not sure Tesla, but I want to be very clear about this. And I'm saying this because you know, I think a lot of people get misled by, by little quotes that float around the internet. Tesla does not have a lot of free cash. And I'm not talking about free cash flow. Free cash flow already fell by more than half uh, in the last quarter. I'm talking about free cash. That is cash available above and beyond their actual accounts payable and current liabilities. That is payables and liabilities due within the next year. Tesla does not have a lot of free cash. There's a reason they just signed up for an up to $7 billion credit line just to have some flexibility with their cash. They also did not tell us why their other long-term liabilities increased by exactly $1 billion. Just all of a sudden, a little, little little, $1 billion increase in current liabilities. Don't mind that at all. Don't mind the $26 billion current liabilities portion next to their $22 billion in cash. Now, every time I do this, you get people that are brilliant and they start saying things like, oh, but Kevin." They have all this inventory and when they sell their cars in inventory, they're 13 $13 billion in inventory, then they'll have more cash again. But those are the same people who then go double count the money in free cash flow. You don't need to look at inventories. You need to look at operating cash flow. And the operating free cash flow is down to about 1.4 billion. That's still fine, but The investments Tesla expects to make over the rest of the year are going to be very high. So Tesla's cash position will be tight. There is a reason why Elon Musk says, hey, hey, um... You know, buybacks are a great idea, but we're not gonna do them because we don't know how bad the recession's going to be and we wanna make sure we have enough money for 2023 and all of our expansion plans. That's great, I'm glad they're expanding. Giga Nevada has already been announced. We expect potentially an announcement for an Indonesia plant, maybe a Northeast Mexico plant. Each of these could have initial investments in the range of three to $5 billion. Massive output of expenses, massive money pits, right? this is good. It's obviously good for Tesla's expansion and their belief that demand will remain high. But keep in mind, Tesla also implied that more price cuts could come to their vehicles in the future. And I want to be very clear about this because I don't want anybody to get blindsided going, oh my gosh, their margin was 25% in Q4. Everybody thought Q4 was going to be bad. Uh-uh. Wait for Q1. I think that's when you're actually going to see their margin potentially fall as low as That's what they alluded to in their earnings. Actually, they didn't even allude to it. They straight up said it. They straight up said in their earnings call, you should expect a gross margin of 80%. And not in 2023, but going forward after 2023, uh, we will try, we will try to approach a 70% uh, gross uh, uh, cost of goods sold again. So that would be a 20% margin expected for 2023 and a 30% is what they're going to try to get to in the future. So keep in mind, when people are bragging about Tesla and the price cuts, it's going to hit their margin. Q4 was not the bad. Q4 was not the worst. And it's more likely, in my opinion, to be Q1, Q2, 2023. And there will probably be more price cuts, which put even more pressure on Tesla. That's okay, though, because of... Tesla's massive existing profit, as long as they can continue to fund their expansion, Tesla's going to eat up the rest of the industry. And now we're starting to see not only the rest of the industry cut uh, uh, their their prices, which is expected, but on top of the price war that's going on, now you've also apparently had uh, uh, San Francisco officials complain asking that Waymo and Chevy Cruze scale back their self-driving division because too many of their self-driving vehicles are getting stuck on roads and, uh, and, and are basically jamming up uh, the flow of traffic because nobody is, is available to go uh, uh, to solve these uh, or, or nobody can quickly get these vehicles off the road because, well, nobody's in them. This is in contrast with Tesla's self-driving system. Over the weekend, uh, over one of the uh, morning live streams in the weekend, I reviewed the Mercedes self-driving system. And the Mercedes self-driving system was a joke. Uh, Let me just give you a rundown of it. The Mercedes self-driving system wouldn't enable in turns on a highway. And they said, well, this is unusual that you would have a turn in a highway. Bizarre. Uh, But then also, the Mercedes self-driving system only operates the Mercedes drive system, which you get in like the $115,000 plus vehicles, the EQE, EQSs. The Mercedes self-driving system only operates when you have a lead car. So in other words, if you're on the highway and there's nobody else there, one of those beautiful times to be able to drive on the highway, you can't enable the system. So you have to speed up to get behind a car. Once you're within about a hundred meters of the car in front of you, then you can enable the drive system because it needs... It to someone to follow, you know what? It needs a Tesla to follow, like the sheep that Mercedes is being. Then it will only work when you're going less than forty miles an hour. It's basically just a dr- adaptive cruise control which keeps you at a distance from the car in front of you and then lane keep assist. That's boring. that's stupid. Tesla has had that for five years. When I bought my Tesla, my Model X in 2017. I didn't need a car in front of me. I didn't have a 40 mile an hour limitation. I could turn on autopilot on the highway, and autopilot on the st- like city streets was was not good back then. It wasn't advertised as being good back then either. It's gotten really good now. Now, yeah, now I've got FSD. It's freaking incredible. I'll talk about that in a moment. But autopilot back five years ago was phenomenal, and no 40 mile an hour restriction on self-driving. So keep in mind. While I'm I'm somewhat saying warnings about tesla that does not make me a tesla bear it makes me a tesla realist i'm not only the little bull kid who's only going to say good stuff about tesla because their whole portfolio is in tesla it's not true for me it shouldn't be true for you you shouldn't be all in on one stock uh but i do believe that tesla's full self-driving is miles ahead of the competition i don't really care about cruz don't really care about waymo Great, they've got mapped self-driving in certain areas, which now regulators are pissed about. Mercedes doesn't hold a candle, neither the other automakers or BYD, because what do they have? Adaptive cruise control and lane keep at certain speed limits. That's stupid, that's boring. What does Tesla have? Tesla has the ability for me to sit down in the car, Press where I want to go on my navigation, which is basically always the same bar, I mean, uh, destination downtown. And uh, I hit go, and then you go. I'm <laughs> just kidding. I, I would never drink and drive. Uh, well, anymore. <laughs> not, not that I ever have. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, the, what's great about the vehicle now is that you plug in a destination, and you hit go, and the darn thing almost always drives without intervention now. It's pretty incredible, it's getting good. And I just got another software update yesterday, which I'm really excited to try out. Uh, this is something that the competition can't hold a candle to. And I think that's where the uh, the massive margins are going to come, for, uh, f- come from for Tesla. Keep in mind that uh, right now, the way I'm modeling Tesla is I am assuming the worst case scenario uh, for uh, Tesla with vehicle margins and I'm using that 80% number as cost of goods sold for my Tesla projections. Uh, by using uh, 80% as a cost of goods sold, uh, I, I I think you're you could be a lot more comfortable with your projections. Uh, and it's fair, I think, to include some reduced level of forecast uh, for a take rate on FSD because you're not going to realize a full $15,000 sale on everyone who but gets FSD. The problem with that, uh, or, or the reason for that, is Tesla does allow people to sign up for FSD as a monthly service option, right? So you could pay a buck 99 or whatever to get FSD per month. That money is going to flow through as cash flow to Tesla a lot more slowly than somebody who just swipes the credit card, so to speak, and finances a $15,000 purchase, which they might do. In fact, that is that is the best hope is that as long as Tesla can have individuals include in their vehicle financing full F, full self driving, that's probably the best way for Tesla to increase their uh, actual free cash flow because now the lenders are basically paying for free cash flow or for uh, full self driving rather than the individual basically borrowing full self driving at a buck ninety nine a month for uh, Tesla. Now, uh, what's interesting about that is if we do a quick calculator, let's do an auto loan calculator. If we do an auto loan calculator and let's go ahead and go with $15,000 for 60, no, let's go to 72 months because everybody's going with longer uh, 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 now. And let's go with 6% down payment zero. I'll put zero for sales tax and all this other crap. So if I finance a $15,000 car loan at 6%, I'm looking at a payment of principal and interest of about, uh, what do we got here? Let's see here, monthly schedule. I don't care about the monthly schedule. My goodness, why do they make the amortization so darn complicated? There we go, $248. Now that's actually really interesting because if you can finance full self-driving in your seven-year car loan for $248 and own full self-driving, you might be inclined to take full self-driving up front with your financing, still get the inflation reduction tax credit because that is deemed a separate sale, even though you could finance it together, it's deemed a separate sale from the sales price of the car for the factor of qualifying for the inflation reduction tax credit. In English, you could still get the $7,500 credit, even if you add on FSD afterwards and finance it all together. So think about it, finance, full self-driving over 72 months for $248 per month, principal and interest for $15,000, right? Or borrow it from Tesla at $199 per month, but never actually own it. I think a lot of people could end up going for that uh, in their upfront financing as as a take rate with Tesla. Uh, So that's where the profit comes from for Tesla. That I think is going to substantially boost margins for Tesla. And so that's where... I think you could probably uh, throw in at least a 10% full take rate on, on Tesla uh, FSD. So if they sell 4 million vehicles come 2025, average selling price $47,000 per vehicle, uh, Take a throw on only a nominal 10% take rate at $15,000, uh, you're looking at at least $400 per share for Tesla. And we're not even at 200 bucks yet right now. Now, if we do hit $200 by the expiration of the coupon code, I have to dye my hair green, but right now Tesla's flat in pre-market, so who knows? But then again, it was flat in pre-market Friday and the darn thing ended up running 11% that day. Pretty wild. But uh, Ford uh, Ford shares again down now 2.5% pre-market on the announcement of these price cuts. We'll see what happens. But I think this is very good information for you to keep in mind if you're exposed to the EV sector. You're going into an era of a lot of car repossessions. You're going into an era of high interest rates, high interest rates that are staying stubbornly high. So you're not really getting relief on the auto loan segment. Uh, More delinquencies means fewer people can qualify for a new car. High 10-year treasuries mean uh, interest rates are staying high even as financial conditions in the stock market are starting to slow. Uh, In other words, lower because stocks are going up, financial conditions loosen. Interest rates are still high. Uh, part of this is with this massive shorting uh, happening in the Treasury's market. It's a massive amount of selling, leading yields to actually go up, actually driving rates higher. Uh, you have a tight cash position for Tesla, and even though their margin is substantially higher than the competition, Ford losing money, BYD probably soon to lose money, full self-driving from the competitors being worthless, in my opinion, uh, you're, you're not in the clear for Tesla, right? You still have headwinds though fortunately in the future Tesla could probably sell vehicles at a break even and take full self-driving and still have a 20 to 30 percent margin solely by selling people full self-driving that's pretty remarkable uh, so so we'll see what happens anyway uh, that's my take on, on a little bit of insight into Tesla what's going on with the Ford market make sure that you remember today is the expiration of the coupon code January 30th maximize that coupon code. We're looking at a large price increase. You get buy sell alerts in the stock stocks and psychology money group. Real estate analysis and the real estate investing course is really, really important for you to get into owning real estate. So check out those do-it-yourself property management, rental renovations, build your wealth uh, as by making more money as well through the Elite Hustlers course. Probably this weekend, we're starting the exclusive Elite Hustler live streams. So if you want to be a part of those where we talk business and it's me, it's not like other people talking to you about business. You can talk about our, uh, your business together with me. Uh, that'll likely start this weekend. Join the Elite Hustlers course for that. If you want to bundle up multiple courses, email us, Kevin at Kevin.com whether you're an existing member or not. Love to have you there. All right, back to Doomberg it is
5: see what we got. Here we are on the right-hand side, as far as rates at those three central banks, the highest in 15 years, uh, much higher than we saw. It's a little yellow bump there uh, towards the left-hand side. That was the European financial crisis. Uh, that was the the uh, Eurozone crisis. Uh, you can see that we haven't had this kind of tightening in a very long time. So what kind of impact is it going to have on a cumulative basis? That's what has yeah, to if you. Can get
0: uh, Mr. Futt here if you can get lucky uh, to reach out. Happy to talk to him. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, whatever is fine. Uh, any thoughts on Lucid speculation? No, I, I think uh, the, the problem with uh, anytime people hear buyout is they immediately think high price. And until we actually have a price of where that buyout could be, I think any kind of run up in Lucid is very, very dangerous and should be sold right away. It's what I thought as well when they doubled. I I'm looking at it. I'm like, I need to short this sucker. Uh, and, uh, and, and sure enough, it went from being up hundred percent to being up like 30%. Uh and, uh, and, and even that I think is excessive
5: what they'll do at the next meeting, although he will definitely leave it open to raise rates and talk about being data dependent. But the idea is they're going to keep rates high for a long time. You were just talking about that because they want to make sure that they get down below 3%, get headed towards 2%. So their argument is going to be we're keeping rates steady and you've got to buy into that. And as you can see from the yellow line there, the markets do not buy into that right now. It'll be interesting to see if that changes
1: come Thursday might just briefly how do you think that takes shape in the statement that we get from the Federal Reserve, they have this line in there about ongoing increases. Does that change at all? Don't think that one changes. I think they're going to talk about ongoing, cha- uh, ongoing uh, rate moves because I think the reaction in the markets to any kind of change would be very counterproductive for the Fed at this point. Mike McKee, thank you. Four weeks of big gains in this equity market. Futures are lower right now by eight tenths of 1%. But check out the year to day moves we've seen so far worldwide. Euro stocks 50. Year today up 9%. NASDAQ 100 up more than 11%. EM equities absolutely flying. Big question too do you fade it or do you chase it? Wall Street and the big debate taking shape this morning. Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan on the one side saying beware of the Fed and telling investors to fade this move higher. HSBC and Federated on the other chasing the rally. If I pick two quotes, let's start with Mike Wilson and I'll compare that to Max Kettner over at HSBC. This is Wilson of Morgan Stanley this morning. We think the recent price action is more of a reflection of the seasonal January effect and short covering. Investors seem to have forgotten the cardinal rule of don't fight the Fed. Perhaps this week will serve as a reminder. That's one side of the debate. Here's the other. Max Kettner, HSBC, publishing this morning. Hawkish surprises could upset some of the bullish repricing. It won't take much to prompt a short-term setback for risk assets. This won't change our first-half view. In fact, we'd rather increase exposure to risk assets during such setbacks. Jim Bianco, Ooh. I want to come to you on that. Well, that's a little bullish. Well, the Mike Wilson camp.
4: I'm probably closer to the Mike Wilson camp. I've been trained not fight the Fed. That has always been a good strategy. This market has been driven by the perceptions of liquidity and interest rates. And if the Fed is going to stay higher for longer and push back on the idea that easing financial conditions is not what they want, that is a tough thing to really fight against. And I think ultimately that is where the market is going to really run into trouble.
1: Nothing changes a consensus narrative quite like a four week rally in the equity market. George, your thoughts on which camp you're in.
6: Look, I'm also, I guess, in the more defensive camp as well. Look, it's, it's, it's a technical feature of, of the markets at the beginning of the year. Uh, we have also vol declining. So that's really allowing for investors to leverage up and, and really getting a false sense of confidence. And I'm concerned that investors are now going to extrapolate the sort of gains we had at the beginning of the year as really the start of a a bull
1: run. And in fact, this is just a bear market rally. It's not just equities, though, George. It's credit, too. You see scope for wider spreads. High-yield spreads, you say, will widen. And yet, spreads have been tighter over the last few months. George, why do you think that is?
6: I mean, because, look, it really comes down to the fact that the economy hasn't really shown severe cracks that will result in credit losses. I mean, and that, that takes time to kind of show up. So, again, this is the kind of ambiguous time period between... You know, the peaking of, of a tightening of financial conditions from the Fed side, at least from raising rates, uh, versus a market that doesn't want to believe it and has an inverted curve and expects them to cut. I mean, the two cannot, you know, last for too much longer. And I think the Fed's going to push back and that's going to push cuts, you know, further into 24. And I think you finally get a sell-off and
1: risk assets in the back of that. George, what will force the market to believe it?
6: Look, I think that, uh, you know, a, com- a combination of either, you, you have, you know, the growth impulse that's coming out of China, which everybody's hanging their hat on, that, you know, that's going to be a pro-growth, that, you know, maybe Europe is in much better shape, and that we don't get the weakness in, in, uh, in the jobs market until later, later in the year, and the Fed just keeps talking the t- tough talk.
1: Or it's just the data. Andrew Hollenhorst, the City, talked about this this morning when he published. He said, we expect upcoming stronger core inflation to challenge this most recent version of the transitory inflation narrative. Jim, I caught up with Andrew Balls at PIMCO last week. It wasn't his base case, but he certainly thought it was the risk for this year that inflation just stays sticky. MORE ELEVATED THAN PEOPLE EXPECT. WHEN YOU SPEAK TO CLIENTS, HOW RECEPTIVE, JIM, ARE THEY WITH THAT VIEW?
4: THEY'RE KIND OF ALL OVER THE LOT WHEN IT COMES TO THAT VIEW. THERE'S A NUMBER OF THEM THAT THINK THAT, YOU KNOW, INFLATION WILL GET BACK TO 2% AND OTHERS THAT DON'T. BUT TO YOUR POINT, I THINK THAT IS REALLY THE QUESTION, AS I SAID EARLIER. IT'S NOT THAT INFLATION PEAKED. WE KNOW THAT. IT'S IS IT GOING TO 2%? AND WHY WOULD IT BE GOING TO 2% OR WHY WOULD IT NOT BE GOING TO two percent? And ultimately, the discussion really comes around the reopening of the economy, both China and the West uh, in a post-COVID. Are we in a post-COVID economy, meaning it is not 2019 anymore? If that's the case, you could make the case that inflation will stay persistent above 2%. Or are we doing like the chairman of Boeing just said, Oh, it's all, we're all going to return to 2019, and it's all going to be just like it used to be, and then the inflation rate will also go back to 2% as well. That's really the question. And I tend to think more in the persistent camp that it's a post-COVID economy. It's
1: different than it was pre-COVID, and we're not going back to there. Well, tech investors hopefully hope that we go back to 2019, Jim. To your point, have we seen real regime change? That's the issue right now for many people. Jim George, sticking with us. Equities right now down by three quarters of 1%. Coming up, fresh data giving Europe a dose of reality.
3: The market has now priced in a much
1: better... So one of the things that I just did, just,
0: just as an extra comparison, take a look at this. The Tesla Model 3 sells for 43,990 bucks. That's the Model 3. Now, the Model 3 gets you about 272 miles of range. If you build out a Mach-E, you're at about 1000 bucks, $2,000 more than that. And uh, your range here is also about, actually, it's less. It's about 247. So lower range, no upgrades, uh, you know, none of the advanced steering or whatever that Ford does. You're about $2,000 more than the Model 3. However, if you compare the Y to the Mach E, the Y uh, is sitting at about $53,400 uh, versus the 45 you've got over here. So $53,400 minus the 45995 It's about $7,500. It's basically exactly the difference of the credit now with the new price cuts here on the, Mach, uh, the Mach-E. It's a pretty good difference. I mean, if you didn't want a sedan like the Model 3 and you wanted either the Y or the Mach-E, 7500 bucks could, could could move some people onto the Mach-E. Again, uh, Ford loses money, whereas Tesla makes money. Uh, but uh, I, I am of the belief that there will probably be another price cut coming. Uh, certainly by April, I would expect another one uh, for Model 3s and Xs. I, I, I don't think it'll be as as substantial as what we've seen previously. But uh, let's look at the range quickly here on the Model Y. See, the Model Y, though, has almost 80 miles more of range uh, over the Mach-E. And that could be useful for, for those uh, range anxiety folks. But then again, is that... 80 miles more of range, worth seven and a half thousand bucks, right? And again, this is not assuming any kind of self-driving uh, in in either of the uh, positions. Something to keep in mind. All right, let's take a listen over to the CNBC. Uh, oh, everyone's on commercial today. Okay, fine. Hey, Honda's got a commercial they're running with a with a strawberry. Yeah, there you go. Oh yeah, this this is how you know the auto market's gone to crap. This is how you know it's bad.
6: (laughs) ...cutting prices on its electric Mustang Mach-E crossover. It will lower pricing of the Mach-E by an average of $4,500, depending on the model. The reductions range from $600 to $5,900, compared with Tesla's price cuts of up to $13,000 on the Model Y earlier this month. Uh, I think a Ford uh, EV executive, Jim, said we are not going to cede ground to anyone.
7: Yeah, I think that the, you have to remember that one of the mantras of uh, of Farley is to never lose money on a car. So they must have some margin here for them to make this, or else it, you know it's just not in their lineup. If it doesn't make money. Uh, my worry here is is that Ford's quarter and Ford's year uh, are uh, have been suboptimal. Clearly, the stock was all the way up in the twenties, and a lot of that is just because people think there's going to be a recession. But a lot of that is, is they got to start delivering. It just got to deliver. And that's uh, they're trying. This is a very big setback because the mach has been a big winner and they're going to put out thirty, forty, fifty thousand 50,000 a month. Now, I will say that if you go back to the beginning of the Tesla conference call, Musk does say, look, we can bring them back up Probably because we've got so much, I mean, we can bring the prices up a little. But this is to stop Ford. There's no doubt about it. what Musk was doing was to stop Ford because Farley has real momentum. And the Mach-E is not sold through. The F-150 is sold through. I mean, I mean, they have enough demand. But, and the F-150 is the star of the lineup. Now,
8: of course, Musk has a truck coming.
2: He
8: does. Odd-looking. You, you may be facing, it's a, it's a ways away, but a more robust effort from Toyota, which still yes. uh Given the change at the top there. Um, and the approach that they've had to hybrids versus all EV, and now perhaps going more... Uh, more significantly mean, into sort of providing EVs and having... Well, I mean, they already have a $3.5 million sale target for 2030, okay. but with the new But the question you know, you still got, you have these tax credits on EV vehicles. You know, you hope that Ford can qualify. I don't know. The are, is their price going to be above that by sure. which they would qualify? Yeah. I mean, that was one of the keys for Tesla yeah. in terms of that price cut coming down and then being able to offer this or get the $7,500 right. $7, so tax credit. Just
7: the margins are going to be very thin, and Ford needs... Remember, Ford's running uh, an ICE internal combustion
8: engine company, and right. that's they're the thing. running well, EV. The margin point is the key one. And Tesla's, you know, Tesla's got the ability to cut price in that way and still have margin.
0: Yeah, This is also true. Uh, somebody here wrote that Tesla has a less expensive Model Y that gets around 270-mile range. I, I don't see that. I see the long range and the performance. I only see two, $53,490 and uh, 56990
7: it is still an exciting story because of the F one hundred and fifty, yeah, which is the greatest selling without this, and then it'll, it'll sell here. But the you know the Mach-E was kind of all right. Our, you know, Ford's best hope, and it'll still sell, I think. But Musk is just, I mean, the man is somewhat, he, he's somewhat unbeatable when it comes to cars.
6: Uh, last week, Adam Jonas and Morgan Stanley asked a lot of dealers if they'd ever seen a car company cut prices by a fifth across most of their product range. No one could think of a, no. a precedent. I mean, he, he, ha- he actually goes back to Henry Ford when he democratized the, the- Model
7: T. Yeah. yeah, you gotta, you know, maybe the Model T was also to keep out everybody. Uh, that was, you know, kind of like standard-
0: Everyone's democratizing everything. Going back to Vlad.
8: Everybody, but There was no standard yeah. 100% of the market. <laughs> Must make 100% of the market. Uh, he's not going to have it. Now, um, guys, uh, uh, a very small part of the market's lucid, but it's worth mentioning this morning because uh, obviously that move up on Friday, in part because of a news story. I think it was Betaville that the Saudis, which own as much as 64, 65% of the company already, might want to take it private. A um, couple of things to to share here. Uh, I mean, the Saudis obviously already control this company. They're spending what up to as much as $3 billion on a production facility for Lucid. They also were a billion of the $1.5 billion at the market offering the company did, remember, not that long right. ago. So there's not a big float here, first of all, which is one reason why you get the kind of moves in Lucid that you saw on Friday. Remember, the stock, I think, ended up 43%, but it had been up as much as twice that amount right. at certain points uh, during the day. Um, I just yeah. don't have, at this point, the
0: ability. All right, so uh, Tesla barely green in the pre-market here. You've got SoFi's running. It's up 10%. It was up about 6 when we covered the earnings at the beginning of uh, this live stream. Uh, their earnings were substantially better than expected. Very, very good numbers. The numbers were, were very surprising uh, what they were able to pull off. and Their forecast was also very good, so very impressive. Uh, big big supporter of them, but I actually have been staying away from investing in them because I thought the numbers would would come out worse before they came in better. So uh, love the company, but definitely uh, was not expecting that kind of beat. So good job, Sofi. You've got Open Door moving down about five percent. Canoe down four and a half percent. You've got ASML down about two point seven percent here in a pre market. Taiwan Semiconductors down only about point two. Uh, NVIDIA down somewhere about 1.93. Ford down about 2%, as well as the NASDAQ down about 1.6. It'll be really interesting to see how the bell opens. We'll see with these uh, higher yields that we're seeing on the 10-year Treasury right now. uh, And a lot of shorting going into the Treasury's market, pushing those yields up. We'll see if that ends up translating to some kind of shorting or profit-taking, what profit there may be on uh, stocks here at the opening bell. Opening bell in about seven and a half minutes. We'll be jumping over to the course member live stream in about two minutes. Thank you so much for listening here, either on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on YouTube, uh, Twitch, Facebook. Shout out to everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you in the next one. And remember, today is January 30th with that expiring coupon code link down below. If you have questions about bundling, email Kevin at mekevin.com. Thanks, bye.